Are you ready? Oh, you just said that right on camera. <laughs> CJ can tell you. CJ will tell you that he learned martini lessons from my husband, so you can, you can describe that. But let me first say thank you all very, very much for coming out tonight. I apologize again to those of you who have to stand. But um, this is good news because we may be able to go offside again next time, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So thank you, video audience, for joining us. Um, and our program tonight is CJ Box, the man in the black hat. Yay. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And with him is Nick Petrie, one of my also favorite writers who is... probably just now thought out from flying in from Milwaukee today. Do you remember, uh, years ago, John Sanford came into the store and it was in July and he looked absolutely wiped out. And I said to him, what's the matter, are you ill? And he said, no, the temperature doubled while I was on the, in the air from Minnesota. So I hope for you it worked in a better direction. Yes. Definitely so. Okay, guys, so we're here to talk about Stormwatch and I'll turn it over to you and I will interrupt whenever I feel like it. So go for it. <laughs> Why don't you explain the martini thing first before we lose it? Oh, the martini thing. I learned. Yeah, I learned this from Rob. Um, we well, he orders a martini, but he wants six olives on the side. And I said, "Why do you have them on the side?" And he said, "So they they don't displace any alcohol." I had a great idea. <laughs> Anyway, thanks for coming. This is a great showing. Thanks a lot. Great to be back. Yeah, and uh, for sure. Um, and it's so nice to be talking with C.J. Box about this great new book. Um, do I have to really shove this up close? Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. So, any so, sorry for the, if 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 I'm doing this. Do you want this instead? Because then you can keep your hands you down. All right. Let's yeah. <sighs> sorry. Well, let me, let me ask a question, and then then Chuck can talk, and we can fuss. How about that? Okay. Um, so you're, you're, the thing about your books is you're really known for writing about these, the issues facing the West, um, seen through the lens of this family man, game warden, Joe Pickett. But so what are the issues with Stormwatch that you're, you're leaning into? So to tell us a bit about that. Yeah, there's several, several of them. And, you know, those of you who read all the books know that that's been the case since the very first book. There's usually a current kind of hot button, resource-based, energy-based, and environment-based issue in the books, and also another element or two. And the way I always look at it, Nick, is I always think, I always research things that interest me that may have nothing to do with uh, Joe Pickett at the time. And then I try to figure out a way, in my mind, to pull the reader through these issues or controversies in a page-turning way. That's just part of the process that it comes. And in this book, in Stormwatch, there's a few things. One is cryptocurrency mining, which um, I'm not going to try to go into crypto uh, and how that all works. But in real life, um, there are entrepreneurs who... Uh, Mining cryptocurrency is very energy intensive, hugely energy intensive. Not a, a lot of people realize that. I read a statistic that um, cryptocurrency mining uses about the same amount of energy as all the appliances in America. So it's a lot. But what these guys have figured out is if they, they will site a little building on top of an abandoned oil or gas well, of which there are thousands of them in the West, 
and then they draw that gas or oil up to power all of these computers that are running white hot to do the cryptocurrency mining. So sometimes in the middle of nowhere, no roads, um, no power lines, are crypto miners now all over the Rocky Mountains, and I've seen them. And I got fascinated by them, so that's one thing uh, about crypto mining. And then um, the other thing is, uh, you know, th there's always a clash in the in the Mountain West with states that have a lot of federal land because that means every time there's a change of administration, that means there's a new boss. Um, these people aren't elected; they're appointed. So therefore, um, literally, people's lives can change every four years. Um, based on the whims of people in, in Washington. So, of course, there are, um, there's a lot of tension sometimes, and I really, want, really got into this one where Nate Romanowski is approached by a group that wants him to join them so they can help Wyoming secede from the union. <laughs> so those are some of the issues. Well, but these are, um, this is a little bit more into politics than you usually get. And, and so how did you kind of thread that needle? This is, we're, we're very polarized now as a country, sure. but you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't, you want to keep all your readers, right? So, yeah. so, so talk, talk about that. A At little. least half of them. <laughs> no. no, this is not, and I have never written an agenda book, um, trying to convince readers to come down on one side of a controversial subject um, only. And I, as a reader myself, I'm really annoyed when I'm reading a book where I feel like the author is trying to make me come around to their point of view, or everyone on one side or the other all depicted as bad guys. So what I always try to do, I think you can't write about the modern West without at least acknowledging that these issues exist and um, these clashes and this tension. So what I always try to do is have both sides of the issue um, voiced by different characters in the books, and I trust readers to come down where they will. And that's certainly, I think, the case with this one. And Joe Pickett is just trying to, all he ever wants to do is, is do his job right. He's not, he's not trying to... Um, uh, you know, be a social justice warrior out there. He's just trying to enforce game and fish regulation. But when he finds things, he can't let them go. And that always gets him in trouble. Wrecking cars. Wrecking cars, yeah. yes. Well, so you, you, you mentioned that sort of the modern West. And, and that's one of the things that I really love about your books is that you really are looking at the West as it is. This is not an idealized version um, you know, it's, it's, you talk about, you know, rising real estate prices from, from tech entrepreneurs, you talk about, you know, rural poverty and, and meth addiction and I mean, that sort of the whole gamut. Um, so, you know, talk about why you, you work that way and, and why that's such a fertile territory for you. Well, I think, I, I mean, I, I am, all, I live in a little small town myself and uh, on a ranch and I try to. Pick, I try to pay attention to what people are talking about, like in the post office, at the bar, at the grocery store, and um, because I think real issues are very interesting. I love to read any book with a great sense of place that makes you feel like you're there and you understand the people. So those are the kind I try to write, you know, and, and sometimes I find subjects that I never anticipated, um, and sometimes when I'm writing the book and incorporate them, I don't know how many people are familiar with shed hunting. 
Do you know what that is? That's picking up the antlers of um, elk and deer. They shed them in the winter, and huge, huge herds of them every winter drop all their antlers. Well, elk antlers, um, a, a typical bull elk has 90 pounds of antlers, and those antlers sell now to traders for $25 a pound. So it can be pretty lucrative. And I was with the game warden um, last year. I was writing this book, and he told me about some really unscrupulous people who are uh, before the shed hunting season opens in May, they've been riding their snowmobiles, chasing, herding herds of elk into really heavy timber to knock their antlers off so they can go back and pick them all up. And I thought, oh, this is made for me. You know, I, uh, So that got into the book that way. That, that's um, a really great theme, too, because you really capture Joe's sense of outrage, right? He, he, his job is important to him. Right, and he has nothing against hunters. He likes hunters. He doesn't like trophy hunters and doesn't like people who stress an entire herd of elk just so they can get the antlers, that kind of thing. That that, that goes to his heart, and um, he's, since the very first book, been outraged by that type of people. Yeah, and that's a that's a um, it's something that folks, I mean, I live, I live in Wisconsin, so we have lots of hunters and fishermen in Wisconsin, but it's a, it's a different sensibility than in the West. Um, because it's, we, Wisconsinites think of it as their birthright, but it's a, it's, it's a different level. Right. It would be as if after a Green Bay Packer game, (laughs) Minnesota Viking fans on um, snowmobiles herded all the Packer fans (laughs) and knocked their cheese heads off (laughs) in the woods. It's outrageous, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm making notes right now. <laughs> so my, my current favorite secondary character is um, Joanne Maybeth's eldest daughter, Sheridan. Um, in Dark Sky, there's this scene where she's basically leading the charge toward the end, and she's on a horse, she's riding to the rescue, her hair, her hair is streaming out behind her. It's this gorgeous, sort of iconic Western image, and it really made me think about sort of Sheridan and... And she also has an important role in this one. So do you think of her as sort of Joe's successor in a way? Or do you think about, will there be a Sheridan book? And also, why is her love life so terrible? It is terrible. <laughs> um, I think as a father of three girls, I, you know, I never, I've never thought any boy that was around them was worthwhile. And so I can do that on the page, even though I have three great sons-in-law now. Um, but Sheridan has been an important part of the Joe Pickett book since the very first book, Open Season, um, and that's 23 years ago. And in that book, she's seven years old, and much of the book is told from her point of view. So she's always been there. Um, and in each book, as you know, I try to highlight different members of the family and different friends. They all kind of take a you know take a, a, a big role, um, a more of a role. In the last book, uh, Shadows Real, Mary Beth was extre- she was really driving the book. Um, this book, Sheridan's very much involved. And with this book, I tried to do something I haven't done that much, and that was bring everybody together. All of the girls, all of the friends, Joe's mother-in-law. You know, it's, it's a big, ense- big ensemble of people um, in this one. And um, I'm not giving away the end to say, when I wrote it, I was thinking of the end of The Godfather, where everything happens, takes place simultaneously, and I wanted that to 
happen with this book, mm -hmm. thus the very large cast of characters. Right. Well, that's always a challenge to work with a lot of characters. So, I, I'm, so what, was, there, was there a particular reason for that? Or is it you just set yourself a sort of challenge, or is that just the way the book evolved? Just the way this book evolves and the way it's the way it arcs and the different storylines all happening at once. Here come the bad FBI agents again. Um, I wanted I wanted Joe and his family to be feel very much isolated and alone, and knowing that they can't trust anybody out there and they have to act in concert to conclude this. I have a question. Oh. All right, so when we're talking about all of these other people, let's talk about the role of the governor of Wyoming because <laughs> the governor and the rotation of the governors has been an important part of Joe's career for good and for bad. Mm -hmm. And in this book, uh, the current governor, Coulter um, Allen, is really in trouble with the electorate of Wyoming. And um, he's important in the book for two reasons. One... Um, in the very first part, Joe finds a body who turns out to be a University of Wyoming professor. And the governor actually approaches Joe and says, do not investigate this. This is too important for you to screw up, you know. And, um, which is pretty much an invitation for Joe. Which means to yeah. Joe, yeah. I've got to find out what happened. <laughs> but also because um, the rumor is that the governor is going to uh, announce his re-election campaign and nobody thinks he can win unless he does some dirty tricks. So, um, and one of the people on the sideline, again, part of the whole ensemble, is the ex-governor, Rulon, makes an appearance as well. Professor Payne Chinese. No. Did that answer your question? Um, yes. Okay. There was kind of a corollary question, but I'm not sure it's a spoiler if I ask it, so let me sit on it for a little bit. Okay. It seems to me that one of the enduring sort of themes of the Joe Pickett books is this sense of, of ethics, of doing what is right. And that's really important to Joe. And you're, you're explicit about it with, with Nate's nickname of him, is Dudley Do-Right. Um, <laughs> and your characters often talk about sort of other characters in terms of, you know, they were raised right or they weren't raised right. Um, so is this something that, um, is, is this part of how you think about the world? Is this something that you have done uh, sort of consciously as a as sort of a way to talk about the world? Uh, it, it seems to me that, that there's, there's more interest in and focus on this topic in your work than in, in many others. I've never been asked that question. Uh -huh, That's a good one. Goal. That's a good one. Um, and I'm trying to think of how to answer it. And I think the only way I can answer it is to say, I think it reflects the culture of this community um, in, and, and a lot of the West um, in, the, in regard to the fact that you'll he often hear um, in real life, like usually men say to other men, he's a good guy. You know that guy? He's a good guy. That says everything. That means he, he, this guy is right with the world. Um, he'll do the right thing. You can trust him even though you don't know him. And sometimes that's the greatest compliment in the world is just, you know, he's a good guy. Oh, you know so-and-so? He's a good guy. So that's what it is. Um, it just kind of reflect the way, reflects the way people talk and speak and act um, in kind of rural, isolated places. Well, and, and character is important in rural America in a way, in a different way than it is in urban America, right? 
Yes, because you can't disappear into a crowd. In a small community, I, I've often said this, and I've even have depicted it a lot in the books, people who might be kind of a, at war with each other politically or um, over water rights or over some kind of dispute are still going to go to the same Forest Service meeting and are still going to go to the PTA meeting or the, you know, they're going to have to see each other every day. So there can't be the kind of animosity that you can so, sometimes get away with in gr large groups of people or cities and by just being absent from those. Right. You can't avoid them. You're going to see them in the post office every day. So you got to deal how to figure out how to deal with it. And you you, you talked earlier about about uh, books that have a real vivid sense of place uh, being important to you. And and to me that's that's really one of the huge hallmarks of this series. I, there there are lots of writers who don't really indulge in setting or or place. That that it's a book that could take place in you know, kind of any town, any any suburban area, any small town, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, there's a there's an argument for that, which is that it allows the reader to put themselves in to, you're, you know, if you don't describe a character, then that character could be, could look like the person that you know that resent, that is sort of like that character, right? Mm -hmm. If the, the town could become the town that you're in, the street that you're driving down. But that's not your approach. Nope. I like, and, and for the same reason why I like to read books with a great sense of place, and I, just to kind of sort of keep in the genre, I mean, I think Michael Connolly writes, is the perfect guide to Los Angeles. Um, James Lee Burke is the perfect guy to tell you about Louisiana. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's Texas series is great, puts you there. And in some cases, when you put the book down, you can't even really remember the plot, but you remember being there. You remember you're sweating along with James Lee Burke in Louisiana. <laughs> and I just think that adds a lot of nu a nuance to the, to the books as the sense of place, as well as um, almost as like a, a, you've had a guide take you there so that you know that place even better than many of the natives because they, they've got observations. That's what I try to do. I will never write a book set in a place I don't know intimately. I wouldn't even try it um, at all. You know, I wrote one short story based in Paris once, a couple of them actually, because I spent a lot of time there. That, but it was always told from an outside perspective, not from the inside out. Well, really, setting done done well is a character, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you think about these books, and you know, there's Joe and Mary Beth. There are the kids. There's you know whoever. There's Nate. Um, but like Wyoming is as present as any of them, if not more so. And the weather especially. Well, yeah. so that, so that's one of Elmore Leonard's 10 rules was never begin a book by writing about the weather. And you begin this book by writing about the weather. You know, and I was cognizant of that, and I knew I was doing it. Um, but then he also says, unless you're so-and-so who can do it really right, well. Right, you know, right. So I, I wanted to start the book in the middle as a huge uh, spring blizzard is rolling down the mountains. Joe is in the middle of it. He's like he's in the, I think one phrase, like he's in the heart of the snow cloud when he climbs a mountain. And this book is storm after storm after storm, where the world just keeps closing in. It gets more isolated. Everybody's getting stuck all the time. Uh, you got to wait for the roads to open before he can continue his investigation. Um, I wrote this all during a real winter like that last year, and this year's even worse. But um, <laughs> I think it adds a, a, a certain... It, it makes the books a little different when, it, when everybody is facing these same outside elements. 
uh, bad guys and good guys. Right. right. And, and, and so I love to write about weather, and I get a lot of experience writing about bad weather. That's true. You should tell them about your horses stepping right over the corral fence because the snow is so high. That's right. But um, actually, one of the things I, I really like about this book, and I don't want to give it a spoiler, is we've talked about Wyoming and the local people and the local issues. But this book has an international element to it, which reminds us that, in fact, no community really today is can't be penetrated anyway or you know doesn't bring people from other cultures and other countries into it and so you can't be as isolated you know strictly wyoming or we, or maybe we we tend to think it's either all white guys or indians mm -hmm. you know in the west but that's not true anymore is it in no. the more cosmopolitan west i think you framed that perfectly thank you yeah, thanks yes i, I practiced yeah. just so i i didn't want to blow it <laughs> well that that is always the challenge of having these conversations is you want to talk about the book but you right. don't want to give out give anything away so there's a you have to sort of walk this tightrope um what was my other question um, so I, I have to, a confession, which is that I'm, I'm really a, I told you this earlier, so it's not a surprise to you. I'm really a, a kind of a Joe Pickett guy. So I have not until lately read your other books, but um, I think I was just being loyal to Joe. Is really, <laughs> that's how I think of it. Um, but they, they share this sensibility and a focus on the West. Um, but like I loved how different, for example, Cody Hoyt is from... Joe Pickett, and I, and I, I, you know, I wonder just like that must it just it just feels like a blast to, to do, and and I wonder, you know, so so talk a little bit about like leaning into those differences and and getting to play off of Joe with some of your other characters. Sure, I find it really rewarding and fun to step outside of the Joe Pickett world, and I've written I think eight books outside. Um, some Cody Hoyt with Cassie Duell, um, book like Blue Heaven that's a pure standalone. Um, there's some. It's it's basically like when I did, when I decide, am I going to write a Joe Pickett book or what? It has all to do with the plot and the idea behind it. Um, if it works better outside of Wyoming, I write that other book. Um, uh, Back of Beyond is a little different because it takes place primarily in Yellowstone Park and Montana, but um, that could not be a Joe Pickett book. No, not as not as it's constructed. And Cody Hoyt was a fun character to write because he's just so he's an alcoholic. He's he's really rough. Um, he's he's not a Joe Pickett guy. He doesn't he didn't care what his duty is. He's just going to do whatever he wants to do, and that's fun to write that like liberating to be able to write that where Joe always has to restrain himself a guy like Cody Hoyt or Nate Romanowski do not do, do and it's fun. you put on a different hat when you write Cody Hoyt? Yeah I, I put on a top hat. No I, don't. no I don't but I do I do come at it from that point of view just like when I write about Cassie Duell that's always challenging for a male author to write a female protagonist. Um, luckily, I have three daughters and my wife and my female agent who all tell me if I screw it up, then, then they'll let me know. But it's fun as an author to write from different points of view and to embody different kinds of characters, I think. Um, and I think it makes the Joe Pickett books better because I learn things writing outside of the series that I can then apply when I write the, the so series. Nick, I'm not sure that you've read Treasure State yet, have you? I have not. Okay, so I'm going to do a little pitch for Treasure State because I think that Joe did a really... Joe. <laughs> CJ. Right. 
CJ did a really interesting thing with um, the the Cassie Duell character, which is he took her to Montana and he made her a private investigator. So that was the book before Treasure State. Was that back of, I'm trying to remember what the title. Bitterroots. Thank you, Bitterroots, which I really love because Montana comes to life in that book very much the way Wyoming comes to life in all the Joe Pickett books. And I like the fact that Cassie... I like procedurals. I love it when, you know, a case develops and there's kind of, there's forward motion to it. My mind just works that way. I like to progress along those lines. But Treasure State, which is another case that Cassie um, is working, really, any of you know about Forrest Finn and the treasure hunt that he set up where, you know, People died trying to find the treasure, and eventually it was found in the Hobbit. So that works its way into the title Treasure Hunt, and it works its way into the story. But Montana is a state with really deep mineral resources. It's, was it copper mostly, isn't it? Copper around the Butte, yeah. Right. And so it also is a place where there was a tremendous amount of union activity because the workers there were very much exploited by the, the mine owners and so forth. So... So I want to say Joe again. <laughs> so CJ um, combines all those things in a really great story. Now, for some reason, he and I have talked about this. Treasure State didn't grab as many of the Joe Pickett readers as it might have. And so I'm, I'm saying I thought it was a brilliant book. And if you have not read those two Cassie Duell books, whether you like the ones with Cody Hoyt or not is a different question. Um, I really urge you to, to read those because, you know, it's a whole year, right, till another Joe Pickett, so you need something to do while you're waiting for one. Um, but so part of my question, finishing it up, uh, I will ask the real question, which is, are you going to write another book with Cassie in Montana? I probably will. I don't have an idea for it yet. I'm not doing a book and a half, you know, a book every other year right. like I was, I was doing previously. But when I have the right idea, yes, I will. So I can ask these questions because CJ and I have been together for every single book he has written. Mm -hmm. about, um, this is the really... 20... I remember. The 29th time, I believe. Uh, well, poison pen. I've been here a few other yeah. times, right, too. But, but there have been other, other events along with all that, some of them not, you know, not in the bookstore and all. But it's really been interesting to have followed him through his entire career. So if I say to you, you should believe me <laughs> that Cassie, those two Cassie Duel books are really, really wonderful. Well, we, we want to make sure we leave some time for questions. So let's see, how much time do we have left oh, yeah. here? All the time you want. Oh, all right. Mm -hmm. Well, do you want to you talk a little more? You want to do, do a few questions? No, I'd love to, do, love to answer any questions that anyone ha might have. And um, But you're going to need to repeat the questions. I right will, now. and I would also really suggest to people, if they haven't read Nick, um, here's an opportunity in this store to, to start. Um, he's a great, great author, good guy. I think if you haven't read him, please, please. He's a good guy. So, anyway, sure, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Wait, can I finish that spiel? I'm going to make another pitch. I'm the first, the first Peter Ash, which is the name of a series character that Nick has written, is called what? The Drifter. The Drifter, and it's great. But the second one, and we're only down, we only have two left, so this is not really a book-selling commercial. 
called Burning Bright, has the most original opening thriller chapter that I've almost ever read. The only other one I find that exciting is Lee Child's book, Persuader. Do you remember mm -hmm. Persuader? Yeah. I didn't read that one. Oh, CJ. Right. I mean, he takes you, he, he absolutely misleads you to the very last sentence. I mean, it's just amazing. The entire chapter stands on his head. Hmm. The minute, But anyway, Burning Bright is astonishing, and I really urge you, it's a paperback that's been out for some time, if you read The Drifter and then read Burning Bright, but you will be so pleased that you have met this new author if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. Well, thank you. You're welcome. You. I've said that a million times. <laughs> I just haven't said it to this audience. <laughs> uh, so any, any questions here while we're open? There's one in the back. Um, the question is, uh, the, my series on TV, am I writing for the series, and has it taken too much time? There are two series, um, Big Sky on ABC and Joe Pickett on uh, Paramount Plus. Um, and uh, Big Sky is in its second season. We're trying to see if it's going to be renewed for a third. There will be a second season of Joe Pickett in just a few months. It's all shot. It's going to be really good. Um, I don't, you know what, I do not. Think of the TV shows when I'm writing. I don't use this. I don't have the actors in mind. I, I'm too far along at this to change at this point. Um, you know, it, it's funny to me sometimes when people say, you know, that that actor they cast as Joe Pickett. He doesn't look anything like Joe Pickett. And um, and it was pointed out to me a few years ago that I'd never once in 23 books have I described what Joe Pickett looks like. Only in one book does it say he's of medium height and build. That's it. So whatever, Joe Pickett looks like whatever you think Joe Pickett looks like. But I think they did a good job of the casting, actually. I think that it's he's good. He's, I'm a big fan of his. He is. But you know what? CJ and I have had many conversations about this. We think that the first series of Joe Pickett, it's Mary Beth who is really fabulous. Yeah, and the actress who's Mary Beth. No kidding. She I think really in many show. ways carries the, the series and has some of the, the best action and the best whatever it is. So I'll be interested to see if that's true in season two. No, I, you know, to answer your question a little further, the only time I think I've ever really thought of the series in when I'm writing was in Treasure State, because the Cassie duel in Big Sky is much different than the Cassie duel that I write. And so I had the very first one of the first scenes of the whole book is my Cassie chasing somebody up a set of stairs and then just standing at the top going, uh, uh, you know, so I was like, this is my Cassie, not that Cassie. So that's the only time I've ever really thought about that. But you're not working on scripts. You're not no. taking meetings. Nope. Nope. I'm no, but let me tell you what. He has been known to text people he knows a picture of himself with his own director's chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I've, been, I've been to the sets. I got to use the clapper, you know, and I've met all the actors and showrunners, but I go for a very short period of time. Um, nothing more boring than being on the set of a television show, believe me, watching the same scene 20 times. Um, or nothing more annoying than hearing an actress in a TV show actually say, my character would never say this. And I thought, I brought you into the world and I would like to take you out. So I better just leave this set right now. 
It's um, also it, remarkable how much Canada, the scenes, the place that they are, mm-hmm. looks like Wyoming. I mean, if you don't know that it's being shot in, hello, are you nibbling on my foot there, little puppy? Yes, you are. <laughs> um, if you don't know that it's in Canada, you would actually be convinced that you, now I've ruined it for you, right? Because you think it's Wyoming. But in truth, um, I think that they've done an amazing job with I their, do too. you know, scenic background for the whole thing. And really, the very best thing about the TV series is that um, they've exposed the books to a lot of viewers that would not have known about them otherwise, and we've seen direct results of that in terms of the backlist sales. People are people are smart, you know. They, even if they see a show that um, maybe they don't buy everything in it, they're still interested in maybe the the location or where where do these books come from? What's the source material? They go out and start buying the books. Um, and so that's, it's like one hour commercials for your books. That's how I look at TV. So, well, and what's the, so what's the hardest part for you about having something? Was it, was it deciding to hand it off to those, to those developers? Is it seeing how things change? No, you know, the hardest part, Nick, is cashing those big checks. (laughs) They're so heavy. They're so heavy. You know, it, it, I know I've talked to enough authors like, like Michael Connolly, for example, about this process um, and how once once it becomes a television show or a movie, you you just hope that they'll do you right. You can't you can't dictate that. And um, if you really want to, unless you're J.K. Rowling, I guess um, you, you just have to you just have to go with what happens. It's a leap of faith. Right, it's a leap of faith. Luckily, I know that the Joe Pickett showrunners are huge fans of the books. They've read every one of them. You go on the set and you see paperbacks of all the books all over the place because they're drawing from them, and that there's nothing no better feeling than that. Yeah. Right. So earlier this afternoon, CJ and Nick were in the back room with me and Diana Gavaldon, who knows a lot about what it's mm-hmm. like to have TV Outlander made from your books, and you guys kind of agreed on how you felt about it well and and um i complimented her because my wife's a huge fan of diana and she's always my wife is always reading responses by diana to people on facebook asking questions like why did you let them do that to your characters kind of thing (laughs) and diana's very very good with responses to that and i've learned a lot Gracious but firm. I Gracious but it. firm. Yeah. yeah. And and she said she has thirteen different letters that she kind of draws from depending on how they ask the question. And the best one was, you know, I'm sorry to have lost you for a reader. I hope you find somebody you like out there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good. Yeah. Yes. The question was um, that he enjoys the layers, the relationship between Sheridan and Nate, and do I have that planned out into the future? And the answer is no. I never look past the current book. I don't have long-time future arcs for all the characters. I don't know how long Joe Pickett will be around. I don't know how he will end, or anyone else. I take it a book at a time, um, maybe because I'm lazy, but I think also because I think if you're an author who's planning too far ahead, you have a tendency to hold things back in the book um, for later. And I think a reader can sense that you're holding back. And I don't think that's fair. So I think everything should go into every book and then figure out the next one. 
I start every book kind of with a little sketch of, okay, Sheridan is now working for Nate and Liv, and she's been doing the apprentice falconer for two years. Maybe it's time she becomes a master falconer and takes over part of the business. That's And then, that, then I go with that. But I don't think way long term. So did you think about Geronimo Jones before you introduced him? I mean, he's such an interesting character in working with Nate. Did he just, like, pop up? He did. He did pop up. I just needed a character for Nate to liaise with in Denver. Right. And um, and basically, you know, form a relationship because Falconers do that. And it, I don't know where Geronimo Jones came from, but he just he was there. And now he's sticking around. Now he's sticking around. He's got a triple-barreled shotgun. At... <laughs> and and perhaps the best name in crime fiction, Geronimo Jones. Geronimo Jones is a great name. Yeah, he shows Nate his, his light driver's license. This is really my name. Yeah. Anyone else? What is your writing process? Look like? My writing process? Um, I always start, well, I start with the, the ideas. The two big themes are three. Um, I don't even know how they're going to link together at first, but I know that I research the heck out of them so that I'm comfortable enough with writing about it. For this book, for example, I knew nothing about cryptocurrency, but I learned a lot so I could explain it. And then I do a long outline that, like I said, kind of pulls a reader through these issues in what I hope is a page-turning way, and then I start writing literally on top of the outline. Um, and I always have an end in mind, although I may change it when I get there. Um, I never start a book without having an ending at least in mind. Or sometimes I finish the book and my wife says, you know, it'd be better if he did it this other way. And I go, yes, of course it would be. Um, so I, I write, you know, minimum of like a thousand words a day when I'm writing, and sometimes it's up, I've done as many as five to seven thousand words and I just I edit what I did the day before and then I push it forward that's now my describe, process describe your wonderful writing studio which I've had the pleasure of being in oh my my office right yeah I have an office on top of our barn our horse barn so I can look out and see our horses in the corral and you have to go into the barn to get up to it and it's a great location and it's away from the house so it always feels like I'm going to work not just going to a different room of the house and the UPS driver doesn't ever knock on the door of the barn, you know, during the day. <laughs> yeah, I know what that's like. Oh, yeah, right? I do. Yeah. I do. So do, do, you, do you start, are you, are you a morning writer? Are you an evening writer? Like, what, what's, what's the day like? You get, I, do you walk the dogs? Yeah, I do. I do. I walk the dogs. I generally work out. Then I start. So I usually start, like, mid-morning. And I judge my day by the word count, not the hours. So some days it's really tough to get that minimum number of words. Other days it just flows. And then I think I've accomplished something. So if you're done by noon, you go fishing? I do. Yep. And I built this office so that I can't look out of the windows from my desk. The windows are high because I used to have an office where I could look out on a river. And if I'd see the fish rising, that was, that was it for the day. You know, so now I have to stand up and look outside if I'm going to do that. Yes. Did you ever find yourself really involved with one character and that you feel part of that one character? Do I ever feel part of one character? Yeah, that happens. Um, it happens quite often where I plan the book out. Somebody is a secondary or even tertiary kind of character who suddenly says something or steps into the story in such a way that they become important that I never can plan. Um, and I, I try to go with that. 
So wait a minute. It's your turn. Let's talk about your writing process for a minute. Yeah. Well, mine's fairly similar. I don't I don't outline. I'm a I'm a seat of the pantser. Um, but I I get up. I go for a walk or a run. I make some coffee. I you know make some breakfast and I sit down and I you know I sort of treat it like a like a day job. And my my goal is a thousand words a day. And some days it's a lot more. Some days it's a lot less. Um, but I, I, I don't know, I, writers all have kind of routines, right? Um, I, I know a, a guy who, um, his office is outside of his house. He lives in, uh, in Boston, I believe. And he takes the same route to his office every day. It's the same thing for breakfast. He leaves at the exact same time. Like, so this is ritual, right? Mm -hmm. um, I know a woman who lives in Minnesota, and she does most of her work um, walking around the lakes, talking on her phone. It's how she writes. Like that is a huge chunk of her process. So everybody has this different methodology. And it's one of the things writers talk about with each other because we all want to know, like, are you as crazy as I am? <laughs> or yeah, how are you so productive? My question to Chuck is always, how are you so productive? Um, so it's, I don't know, it's, a, it's, you know, writers can talk about this endlessly. So Well, see, I think there's a certain amount of superstition involved because oh, totally. my theory is if it worked for you once, why mess with it? Yeah. And, you know, I've seen, I mean, really, you know, but the hard part is, is how you got it to work once. That's the real threshold question. Well, and, and we were talking about this um, earlier, which was that, like, if you, you said that if you start to think too much about what people are going to think, about it that 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 kind of gets you jammed up so there's this like black magic we have to do which is sort of think about the reader but not think about the reader mm -hmm. and and think about the story but not think about the story it's a very strange little mental jujitsu it is and, and and if you try to start thinking about the reaction to something that you're writing especially this day and age that can yeah. paralyze you so yeah. i just got to write the book the way i like it and hopefully readers will agree. Have you encountered a sensitivity reader yet or a sensitivity editor? Because this is the new thing. I had a copy editor who didn't have that official title but acted like that, um, questioning all these things in the books um, from a very political point right. of view. And um, it wasn't the editor. It was an unnamed copy editor. And I disregarded every single thing they said and just sent it into the editor and said, Please, I don't want to work with that person again, whoever they are. Well, there's um, there's so much concern about um, offending people or creating flash mobs of you know protesters and so forth. There have been some fairly ugly incidents in publishing about it that many publishers now send manuscripts to sensitivity readers. So you know, i you can tell I'm really not in favor of that. Um, and any did any of you have read about the big furor over Roald Dahl, for example, that uh, Roald Dahl's children's books, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and so forth. His British publisher decided to purge anything that might be offensive to a current reader, and it has produced this enormous storm of which I'm glad. And yeah. and yeah. so what they what they finally did to resolve it is they agreed to keep Roald Dahl, Dahl classics just the way he wrote them. But then they decided they would stick. Somebody made a decision they don't want to retract is really what this yeah. is. They don't want to say, you know what, we screwed up and we shouldn't have ever touched this, which is true. So they're leaving the books they printed um, with the, with the you know, changes. And so they've now got two different versions mm -hmm. of Roald Dahl's 
exact yeah, books. Classic. And I think this way madness lies, you know. But it's like Coca-Cola. They they screwed up the new Coke, so they went back to Coke Classic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you had a question. What did I do? Um, I had did a lot of different things. I I had a I had a company. My wife and I owned an international tourism marketing company. We worked for Western State Tourism Boards in Europe and Scandinavia. So we did lots of international travel and so on. Before that, I worked for the state of Wyoming, um, and I had a bunch of different jobs prior to that. Journalist was the one I had straight out of college, and um, still wrote a newspaper column. But I was working. I was working full time for first ten years, first ten books of this series. Before, once finally, the book started to take over, then I was able to step back. So that was those were tough years, right? Doing that, writing a book and working full time. Well, so I, I have a question about about your your life as a journalist. Um, one of the hallmarks to me of your work is that it is so sort of clean and precise. Um, and do you think that's a holdover of your of your of your training as a journalist? Is this just sort of how you how you think it should be? Like how did how did you come to that uh, sort of lapidary prose that you had? I think that was primarily training in journalism, writing cleanly, um, crisply. But I also find that as a reader. Um, often, uh, when I find a new author who I really, really like and like their style, I dig into that and find out they're a former journalist. Um, because there, there's, a, there's not much difference between writing um, a great opening line in a book and a killer lead in a feature story. Yeah. They're both basically designed to do the same thing, to hook the reader. And you learn to write on deadline. Um, the cleaner it is, the more easily understandable it is. And I think sometimes writers who come from a very creative writing kind of background tend to be writing to show off a little bit um, to show the reader, look how I can write, whereas that's not the point. The point is to communicate. So I think it's helpful. Several questions over there. Yes. Uh oh, I don't know who's asking. Oh, she's way in the, in the back here. Raise your hand. There you go. Oh, and speak up a little, please. How did I find my first agent? Editor. Um, comes after your agent. I, I had an agent who wasn't doing anything, getting anything done for me. Um, this is pre-email, pre-internet, um, where I physically had to send the manuscript to this guy in New York who, um, for four years, I would call him and say, is anything happening? And he'd say, you know, nobody's interested in this kind of thing. You know, um, it's not, it's, it's sort of a mystery. It's sort of a Western. It doesn't really, you know, um, quit calling me. I'll let you know when something happened. Four years went by. Um, I was getting very impatient. My wife was getting impatient. I went to a writing conference in Denver where you pitch your books to agents and editors. I think there are, those, these kind of books are everywhere. I pitched the book to this agent and the aide uh, uh, who was very interested in the concept that was open season and um the agent said well do you have an agent and i said well yeah i do they're not doing much and they said who is it and i told him his name and the, the agent said you don't know he's dead do you 
and he'd been dead like 18 months, and, and nobody told me. No one in his office thought to like let his clients know. So this story got around the conference, and a very, very young editor from Putnam heard the story about the guy from Wyoming with the dead agent, <laughs> and she contacted me. She liked the concept, and that was my first editor. So I had an editor before an agent. So I, I'm not very good at giving advice because I did it all wrong. That's not really how it works. Yeah, you have to get an not. generally you get an agent, and then whoever buys the book assigns your editor to you. So it works that way. Although it's a stroke of luck to have a dead agent. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Lady in the black, you've had your hand up. And I have a busy brain, and I can't imagine what your brain is like, because I know I read that you ski, hunt, you fish, you ride. How do you be in the moment without thinking of a story or not thinking of your character or just cutting it off? How do, how do I do all these things and still write books, basically? Um, I think if you're if you're a writer, it's just simply hardwired in you that you're a writer. And you, we've all heard that expression. Um, if you walk around with a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Um, I think if you're a writer, everything you do, you somehow you sometimes translate that back into how would I tell this scene? Can I use this thing that's happening in some other way? So adventures, doing things, just fuels that. Um, I would sort of disagree with you. I heard an analogy once that, that was, I think is very apt uh, when I think about my wife and all my daughters and stuff, that if a woman is able, would be able to just transfer her, or a man was able to transfer himself into a woman's brain, have a woman's brain, it would be very, very busy and a lot of things going on in a lot of relationships. And if you took it the other way and the woman in the man's brain, she'd say, oh, it's so quiet in here. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's kind of like that. Yes. On the same network? Have any hopes about like a corrective that the Joe? <laughs> I don't know. I just think that that's really those are that's an interesting juxtaposition. It is. It is. I think um, the question was. She said um, she's from Idaho, so she hasn't ever watched TV. <laughs> she, <laughs> she doesn't have Paramount Plus. <laughs> She just looks at moose and stuff like that. She's just wondering about the, the the juxtaposition between, you know, like the Yellowstone phenomenon on Paramount Plus and Joe Pickett on the same streaming network. Um, I think, uh, you know, Yellowstone, my wife and I hate watch it every week, like we have to. But um, but it, it has also elevated... It created the fact that there can be different kind of there. There are there's interest in series other than what was out there, yeah. and it has opened that up. And I think I'm what we're certainly a beneficiary of that. Well, and there's more than one way to talk about the West. Yep, yep. Yeah. Besides, in 1923, you get Harrison Ford all over again at age 80, and he is phenomenal. Yeah. So not too bad. Yes. So someday when you get TV in Idaho, you can watch. You can watch it. <laughs> 
Yes. Right. Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, because I didn't want Nate to just send, you know, be kind of the classic sidekick who comes in and just kicks butt at the end of every book and saves the hero. I wanted him to have an actual life and arc of his own that may that was that goes a different direction than I think what most readers would would have guessed. So I just that's why exactly that. Um, you know, when you get 23 books, you just, people change. They get older, they get wiser. Um, he's the last person you would probably say is going to get married, settle down, and have a little kid. But it's pretty fun when, you know, in the last book where Nate's trying to figure out what kind of pampers to buy. You know? It, 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 I think that just says something about him, and it's fun to do. And to have the fact that he he's always kind of admired Joe Pickett, and now he knows what Joe Pickett's life is more like, and kind of wonders how Joe did that, as dumb as he is, you know. Is there is there a Thank final you. question before we move to, because it's going to take a long time to sign all these books. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes. Oh. Oh. Pandemic. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, yeah, I fished the bighorn. Yeah, I'd like to. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I will accept your offer. Did you have a final killer question that you wanted to ask? Well, anyone? let's see. Because uh, I know you're prepared. So I, I asked a question. I was on a, I was moderating a panel at, at, a, at a conference in Dallas, and I asked, let's see, Jack Carr, Mark Graney, Mark Cameron, um, Brad Taylor, somebody else. So all real tough guy writers, right? Mm -hmm. Good writers. And, and I said, so what's the first book that really hit you as a kid, maybe, that made you really want to be a writer. And, and three of those guys teared up talking about this. So, hmm. so what's the book that, 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 did, that did that for you, that turned on that light for you? Uh, it, it Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Um, that was the first kind of adult book that I read. I think I was in junior high at the time. It wasn't assigned. I just read it. That's quite a book for junior high. And But then I've since read it three times, and each time I read it, I get different things out of it, being different stage in life. But that was the one book that I thought sort of changed my life and outlook. And the first time I started thinking, God, I wonder if I could ever do this and affect people in this way, as I feel. And so that would that would be the big one. Yeah. So what was the book the three of them teared up over? No, it was they. They all had their own. Oh, it wasn't book. the same. No, no, they all they all had their own book, and it was something about the somebody. Mark Cameron talked about his uh, a high school teacher who who would send back his horrible um, his horrible papers covered with red ink, um, and he tr he wanted so badly to to please her that he that was like his that was what got him to really lean into. Writing, he 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 really sort of teared up. It was really very sweet. He's a lovely guy. He's a lovely guy. He will be here on May fifteenth. I'm happy to tell you. <laughs> you go. Oh, yeah. I can I can do that yeah. practically for the entire year. Yeah. So we've come to the part where, in order to thank you, 
um, because I know you're going to thank our authors. I'm going to give away a couple of advanced reading copies of books that I have read, but you won't be able to read for a little while. PK? Sorry? 61. Okay. So the first book is a debut novel called How I'll Kill You by Ren Stefano, which involves three sisters, two of whom are serial killers. And they inhabit a small town in Arizona. So I'm going to be talking to her. Um, actually, they're identical triplets, which makes it even more difficult for law enforcement. Um, I'm going to be talking to her later in March. I'm going to send out our March calendar to you on March 1st. And it exhausted me to even write it up. It'll exhaust you to read it because we have so much going on. But anyway... Um, and I'm going to be getting autographed copies of it because we try to do that with all debut novels, which is how CJ and I got together in the first place over open season. So I want you to pick a number between one and, what do you say? Six, 61. Between one and 61. 28. So you have to look at your ticket in your book. And if number, sometimes we have to do this two or three times because not everybody comes. Don't say that. It won't treat you. Right. No, no. Number 28 is here. <laughs> no. All right. Got to wait. Ah, you. This Could is you... my cousin. Good. <laughs> if you... there she you told are. me to pick number 28. <laughs> Love it. She had to actually do four the other night because, as I said, sometimes people order their books and stay home in their jammies to watch. I'm serious to watch it instead. So it was kind of got. Tiring. All right, so we have one more. She really is my cousin, and she really did say before we started, pick number 28. And I remember. <laughs> no, last, the last part is not true. <laughs> so the other one is Don Winslow's new book um, called City of Dreams. It is the second in his kind of Godfather series, and he will be here on April 17th to kick off his book tour. Cool. Don is another author who has been here for every book that he has ever written. And the first time he was here, there was me and one other employee and Don. Um, and so I, and I'm serious. I urge you to support new authors because it means the world to them because they're terrified that nobody will come or nobody will like their book. Um, and even if there's only four or five fans, it really makes a big difference, yeah. you know. So whenever I say debut, it would be wonderful if you could bring yourself to get out of your jammies, actually get dressed, and come down to the store. So I need you to pick a number between 1 and 61 that is not 28. Uh -huh. And if you have any relatives out no, there, have, confess no, now. No relatives that I know of. Uh, 47. Oh. Way in the back. All right. So see me when, when we're doing the signing line, and I will give you this. So let's give our authors a big hand for coming. And I'd like to thank Barbara and Nick for making this such a fun evening. Really, thank you, and thanks for coming. Yeah, and thank you, Barbara, for inviting me. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.